Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is very different from the kind of typical male receding hairline kind of hair loss, is, or is that defined as alopecia as well? Male pattern hair loss, but it, basically male pattern hair loss is a progressive hair loss condition. So the fact is you can, you can arrest its development and you can make improvements if you... Emma Gunnar-Wardner of the Emma Guns podcast. Journalist and public speaker. I did sort of feel like there was a bit of a target on my back. And I didn't help that situation. I think I said I was quite loud because I wanted to be noticed. But whenever I did get noticed, it wasn't for the right reasons. And I'd end up sort of perhaps uh, getting, um, I don't know, someone saying something not particularly pleasant to me. I walked out into the world every single day expecting an attack. So I was extremely prickly. So every time I saw someone in the street and they looked at me, they weren't just looking at the person they were walking past. It was like, oh, they were looking down. I had this horrible perspective of the world that everybody was just waiting for that opportunity to take a jab at me. I've put this filter on the world that it's about to attack me. What actually happened is I became, I became the arsehole. Hello and welcome to Second Chance Podcast. I'm Raphael Rowe, your host. This podcast focuses on the theme of second chance, exploring who deserves it, who has the authority to grant it and what it means. We speak with people from diverse backgrounds, including those who have been given second chances and those who some might argue don't deserve them. Emma Guns has had some remarkable experiences as a beauty editor and has worked with global brands in beauty, health and lifestyle. She's mingled with models, TV personalities and pop stars, attending some of the most converted red carpet events. But Emma's personal life has been a different story. Beneath her smile and glamorous exterior, Emma struggled with her weight, depression, anxiety and the lifelong hair loss condition, alopecia. Emma's experiences have compelled her to become an advocate for those who face similar struggles, providing guidance and support for those who need it most. Despite the challenges, Emma has learned to overcome her struggles, sharing the methods and practical help that have worked for her. She acknowledges that there is no one simple answer, but rather a combination of different approaches that work on different days. Whether it's writing a to-do list or taking a walk, Emma emphasises the importance of doing what makes you feel good in the moment. Emma's advocacy and willingness to share her struggles have provided a ray of hope for many individuals who may be going through similar experiences. Her story reminds us that we all have our unique battles, but with determination and support, we can overcome them. But let's go back to when you were a teenager, Emma. You're coming to the end of, let's say, your infant school, where you start to discover things for yourself. What was like 
like for you? And where in the world did you grow up? So I grew up in a small, sleepy village in Kent, which is lovely and I adore going back to it. But when you are an ambitious young person, it's a re- it feels like you're just disconnected from everything. And actually, that particular point in time was pretty pivotal for me, this um, sort of infant school to senior school, because I actually went through some really, some physical changes. And the reason why that was significant is because up until the age of around nine, ten, I was just a very active, bubbly little girl who was skinny. And then there was a real shift and I became really, really fat. <laughs> don't really know how else to say it. And I'm saying it about myself. So um, apologies to anyone who has sensitivity around this subject, but that's the way I articulate it that I feel comfortable with. And Actually, the reason why that was significant, and I didn't understand at the time necessarily, but it's something that you can go back and interrogate through adult eyes, is that I learned a really harsh lesson, which is the world treats you differently based on what you look like. (laughs) Because up until that point, it had been, isn't Emma this? Isn't she lovely? And people would be like, oh, you're buying a little kid presents and dresses and all these things about how they look. And then you become a problem that they're trying to fix because, oh, she, she probably shouldn't be eating that. So it really shifted. And I remember really understanding that something was different, but it took a long time to understand kind of what was happening internally and how I was processing that. But um, that, that was a really significant shift. And I think my personality fundamentally changed at that age because I thought I was wrong. And I felt very insecure out in the world because as well, kids make fun of what they see. So if you are the only person of color in a school, kids are going to make fun of the color of your skin. If you're the fat one, they're going to make fun of the fact that you're fat. Kids point out what is different about a person and use it to needle. So there was there was that reaction sort of from the from the adults. And then obviously there was bullying in school. Why is that, Emma? When, when you think back, to when you were going through this kind of change as a, as a person and people were recognising this change? What, why do you think it can have such a an impact on your personality? And I know what you mean about the physical changes, but what about the psychological changes? As you say, you know, the outward bullying, the outward comments are then digested by the person who's being bullied, who's being commented on, and they don't stand up there and say, don't bully me. They don't stand up there and say, don't say that about too much chocolate. They process it internally. What impact does it have on an individual when it is processed internally, like when it was for you? I don't know. I think everyone probably processes it completely differently. And I know that for me, it kind of got buried as a dirty secret. (laughs) I just felt that you just notice how you're treated differently. The things that you say carry less weight or you're not as funny or you're because I don't know. I don't know what it is necessarily that makes other people treat you the way that they do. But I was just very aware that there was a, a real shift in she's gone from being somebody that people really want to be around and pick up and, you know, um, have pictures with. And then, uh, you suddenly are again, like I say, this sort of problem that needed to be fixed. And I guess when you are little and you are, I don't know, I guess I was kind of quite quite capricious, quite outgoing, quite kind of look at me, I'm dancing as a lot of little girls are. It then sort of became, well, and I get, I actually became louder, which is probably not the way I should have gone. And I remember working one of my first jobs, my boss saying to me, you're just like a typical fat person because you just, you're so funny and you make us all really comfortable and you're always the one who, who starts the jokes. And I just was like heartbroken because I was being funny and loud, hoping that if I, it was distraction. I was hoping that if they saw my personality, they wouldn't see me physically. And obviously I understand what I'm saying to you and I know that that's bonkers, but I definitely started to present in a, in that way of like, look at me, look at what I'm doing, but, but don't look at this. Listen to what I'm saying. Find me funny. Just, just give me some positive feedback. Um, so that was, that was how it came out of me. So I was a joy to be around as a teenager and I was also sullen as well. But, 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 but tell me, was it, was it your perception 
of how people were treating you? Was it an internal process or was it genuinely a bit of both? How you were processing people's reaction to your change or was it really people saying things that were hurtful? Well, none of this has really made sense. None of it made sense at the time. It's it's stuff that I've really sort of seen clearly with hindsight and it was a mixture of my internalizing and how other people were and the comments that were made like I remember being at school and going down the slide and obviously it had to be the tall thin blonde girl looked at me and went oh my god I'd kill myself if my stomach looked like that and I must have been I know 10 or 11 at that point and that was quite like oh okay I'm wrong, I'm bad, and oh, and I and I discuss somebody. And at the time, it just felt like a really cruel thing that was said to me. And but as time goes on, you kind of think, oh, I think I understand now how that kind of it stuck and made me feel embarrassed about my body. Like I didn't want to go down a slide ever again. Those sorts of things, like don't take me to the park. I'm not going to get on a swing or anything because those sorts of things that happen to you when you're a kid, they really do. You don't realize the impact that they're having when they're said to you. I think it's a lot later that you can kind of look back and say, wow, I understand that that stupid little comment that was probably forgotten the second it was said actually really embedded and informed how I behaved. So I think there was a lot of that as well of just kind of feeling criticized quite a lot. And it was about my appearance and just kind of I actually know, having done the work that I've done, I definitely disconnected and almost like you know, I mentioned earlier about I would display a personality and hope people didn't see me. I kind of, it almost was that. It was like two separate entities. There was me physically and then me as my personality. And I didn't even, I didn't look at myself in the mirror for a long time. I didn't want to see what I looked like. I'd wear the same clothes all the time because I just wanted to cover and camouflage. So I think a lot of damage is done in those early days. But unfortunately, you just can't change kids. They are going to point out the thing about somebody that makes them different from the herd. And I don't know if you can make kids not do that. At that age, do you share those kinds of thoughts and feelings with anyone? Are you able to share with with anyone thinking back? Because as you say, you were internalising it. It was having an impact. You were dressing to hide yourself. You were doing things that you shouldn't be doing at such a young age, but you were, and lots of kids are. You know, as a grown-up looking back at yourself, what what would have made a difference, if anything? Hmm, that's a really interesting question because I think you could go two ways with it. You could, I mean, you said something on my podcast about always celebrate the thing about you that makes you different. Make sure you stand out. Don't try and assimilate when you go into uh, a situation. And I think that's really wonderful advice. So on the one hand, one could say, uh, look at the body positivity and body acceptance movement and say, there's nothing wrong with you, little Emma. You're absolutely fine as you are. Just, you don't look like other people, but they don't look like you and no one is right and no one is wrong. And you can approach it with compassion. And hopefully that will then kind of break this idea that you have to be physically perfect in order to be valid, which I think is what I internalized. But at the same time, and this is more aligned with who I am as uh, the woman I am now, is one does have agency to make changes to their body. And I didn't enjoy being a fat kid. And I certainly didn't enjoy being an overweight adult. It's not nice to bend over to do your shoelaces up and have to take a big hulking breath before you do so because you're just naturally going to kind of asphyxiate yourself by bending over. It's not fun to not run for a bus or miss trains because you can't run for them, all of these things. And so I really wish I had been empowered earlier or been able to see earlier that I I could make changes. And it actually isn't about, it wasn't about diet and exercise for me. I was using food to kind of fill an emotional black hole. And so I had to correct that behavior before I could even think about diet and exercise in in all honesty. And for years I'd hammered myself with dieting and with exercising and I'd had always had some success, but then I would always go back up to the same weight or even heavier. So I was on this yo-yo cycle and I just I, I couldn't bear it. So I what I would what I would really love to be able to have known back then, back when I was a kid, is to kind of deal with like what are you using food for? You know this stuff that you rely on is 
it's not great for you. It's not going to make you feel good in the long term. And I think that was kind of what my relationship with food was, was like. It was kind of a short-term fix. It was a hit. It really was. And I wish I'd been able to look at it as, as a long game because that's how I view it now is I want to nourish and feed myself to support the training that I do. And I also want to nourish and support myself to not gain weight in the way that I used to. And that's what I wish I could go back and tell little Emma. Let me just ask about your first, well, not your first job, but when you were young, you were working in the beauty and health industry, working for fashion magazines. Tell me a little bit about that, Emma, because if you were going through this challenging period, I don't know if it was still happening as you become a younger teenager, you know, 15 to 20, but you did, I think, go down a successful path in terms of your career choices. You, you know, I read that you studied sociology uh, at university. T- tell me a little bit about your educational path that led to your first job, if you like. So I was at school and uh, I wasn't clever at all. I really, I kind of scraped by, but I wasn't engaged in anything. I went to, my parents really sacrificed to send me to a good school, but perhaps it wasn't a great school for me. And all I wanted to be was a backing singer with Guns N' Roses. And uh, (laughs) like, that was just like, well, why am I even bothering with this when I want to be on stage with Axel and Slash? And so I just, I wasn't particularly engaged with anything. I wasn't, uh, I didn't pick things up. And so actually I kind of just skated, sort of just about coasted through school. And actually I did go on to study sociology at university. And the the reason that happened is because I got my A-level results and I got a C and two Ds. So this would have been 1996. And the C and two Ds was basically like, at my school, it was like, oh my God, why did we even let this woman into the, into the class? And my English teacher, who is Ab Mrs. Riddell, she's no longer with us, but she is absolutely one of the most significant figures in my life, collared me in the corridor. We've been upstairs collecting our results. And then I walked past the staff room and she was in the corridor and I was just ashen and like, oh my God, what am I going to tell my dad? Like, I'm not, I'm, I don't have a play. I'm not going to go to university. And that was a, that was a big deal. And uh, she just said, you drop, I grew up in Kent. She said, you drive down to the University of Kent right here, right now. You find the undergraduate admissions officer and you tell him your story and you go and you tell him that you need a place. And so I was like, yes, Mrs. Riddell, like sobbing. So I sobbed. I drove down to the University of Kent. I found the, my brother had been there. He was, I think he'd just finished. Uh, yeah, he, he had been at the University of Kent. I think he might've graduated that summer. I drove down. I was like, hi, like my name's Emma. I'd like to see the undergraduate admissions officer. And he actually saw me. And I explained that I would really like a place and I know my results weren't great. And he sort of looked at me and I said, oh, my brother came here. He's just graduated. He said, oh, I do like it when, when brothers and sisters come to the same university. And I sort of sat there and he had this pile of papers, all of these kids, UCAS forms on his desk, all through clearing. And he said every single one, he picked up about five, he said every single one, better results than you, better results than you. And I was like, yeah, but but uh, but I'm here. I'm in front of you now. Anyway, he said, okay, fine. You've got two places. You can do theology or sociology. And I went, what's theology? And he said, right, sociology it is. <laughs> That's an incredible story, Emma, but I'm impressed that you actually, for the first time in your educational career, listened to two people, the teacher who told you to drive down to the university, you did what they asked you to do, whereas it sounds like before that, in the years that you were at school, you weren't really listening, given your results, or maybe you was, and there were different reasons why your results were not what some would expect for you to go into universities, i.e. Your, your parents. And then secondly, this guy who at the um, clearing office at the university sort of asked you to make a decision in, or, or left you with just two choices. How, how did it change your life then? How did that going down to that university, accepting that, that you needed to, how did that change your life, if, if it did at all? I think I do view it as a sliding doors moment because it could have gone the other way and I don't know what the other way would have looked like. I like to think, we all like to think that things would have worked out and I still would have found my way to what I'm doing because I love what I'm doing. 
but I just don't know. Can I just interrupt you, Emma? Because I'm I'm just thinking when you describe turning up at the university <laughs> and like some hands on hip, I'm Emma Guns and I want a place. I, I can visualise that in some kind of Trinity school kind of play. But before that, you talked a, a lot about how, you, you know, being overweight, being bullied was, was an issue. Just, just, just I, I'm just trying to get a picture of the the Emma between the two characters because there was this persona, hands on hip, I'm Emma Guns, give me a position at this university. And then there feels like there's another Emma. Which, which Emma was in between those two? Well, I think there's, there's basically a highly insecure Emma at the, at the core of it all. And so although I might have presented as turning up hands on hips, I was begging. Like I did go begging because I was desperate and I'm a high, I am was a highly anxious person as well. So when I walked in there, it wasn't this confident um, St. Trinian's like, you will give me a place, sir. It was, oh my God, please give me a place. I'm begging you because I was so panicked about what might happen if I didn't. So I probably have presented two distinct characters, but I think what lies at the at the center of them all is just high, high anxiety. And that was where Where's I was that coming from because it suggests to me that the bravery of turning up at a university, as desperate as you were, it's courageous actually. It takes quite a personality to be capable of doing that most kids I think today would be terrified of doing that embarrassed about doing that you know try and hide the fact that they are desperate because they need to give off a a particular image so I I see that as quite courageous quite a brave thing for you to have done even if it was done out of desperation Um, did you not recognize it as as quite a brave and courageous thing to do no, and it's funny that it, it's interesting to me that that's your observation because I'm very good at doing what I'm told. So when Mrs. Riddell, who was a formidable woman, I hasten to add, said, you're driving down there, no part of me was involved in that decision. I had been told to do it, so I was going to do it. So I, I, I was quite passive in my life, even though I'm telling a story where it's like, and I understand as an adult, I can look back and say, yes, but you could have driven home. And watch Point Break, which is what I'd done in the morning before I got my results. You could have driven home and watched Point Break again, which you would have enjoyed. But yeah, something did get you in the car. But it, it isn't until much later that I'm able to look back and and see my part in that. Does that make sense? I just saw Mrs. Riddell told me to go down there and said, right, say say these three things. And so that's what I did. So I was I kind of a good performing monkey, but I didn't at the time appreciate and even now when you're saying it to me I'm like actually yeah you've got a point I didn't appreciate that I was the one who went in introduced myself pled my case me I was just thinking I'm begging you sir I am begging you because I don't know what my life will look like if I'm not at a university what did you go on to do so I got a job selling software over the phone (laughs) that was my first kind of big job after I had done all my temping and I didn't enjoy it because it was selling software over the phone. I don't know the first, I mean, I didn't know what I was selling, truthfully. Do you know what I mean? Like, it, I don't have a much interest in computers. I don't really know what the software did. But it was a really decent graduate salary. I think, I think it must have been, I must have been about 18 months, maybe. It sounds really twee, but um, I went to New York and I remember walking around Manhattan one day and I was on my own. I'm just thinking, I don't know if you've been to Manhattan and anyone who's listening, Manhattan's just definitely back in the, this this would have been the year 2000, had this incredible energy, just kind of, it wasn't the, it was 2001. And essentially I'd spent some time in Manhattan on my own. And when I'd been there back in 99, after I left university, I went to the top of the Twin Towers you get this perspective that just kind of like this, the world is huge. Look at what's happening. You, and I remember going up there and just kind of having this moment of just thinking, wow, this is, this is amazing. Just like seeing the world from this high. And then I was doing this job and I was actually in Boston on September the 11th and was trying to get home. I was due on a plane that was leaving Logan that day and obviously got delayed couldn't get back home for another 10 days and just remember thinking the life that I want to go back to isn't the one that I've made for myself 
I can't be selling software for the rest of my life. I want to work, I want to write for magazines and I want to write about beauty products and I want to be in the beauty industry. And so I very tentatively spoke to my father because I was looking for somebody to give me permission to do this. I wasn't ever going to make this decision unless I got permission. And I basically- where did where did that interest come from though? It, it, where, where did that interest for beauty, fashion, writing come from? Well, I can understand it now. It was kind of, when I put on weight, it turned out I discovered years later that I had a hormone issue, which meant that I had really unstable hormones. And so when I hit puberty, I didn't blossom and bloom. I basically got facial hair, got alopecia, put on weight. What else? Kind of change in mood, really bad acne. So it was it was pretty hideous. And so earlier than a lot of my friends, I found comfort in the beauty pages of magazines because these women were talking about acne solutions and they were talking about skincare. And these were things that I wanted to have an interest in because I wanted to fix my problem. I wanted to fix my acne. I wanted to not have a visible mustache and really big sideburns. <laughs> like things were not, I, t- my teen years were not kind to me. And so I really clung to those pages. I clung to everything that they said. I would buy all of these different things. I would try all sorts of I mean, I remember even going to the library and just like herbal remedies for acne and chopping up loads of parsley and steaming my face over a bowl of boiling water and parsley because someone had said that would help. And so my interest in beauty really stemmed from that. But then I think there was also this other element to it in that I grew up, or a lot of the media that I consumed at a formative age in the 90s, late 80s and 90s, if you think back to the protagonist of any the female protagonist of most chick flicks, they were all journalists. They all worked for magazines. And so I thought, well, if I go and work for a magazine, I will be popular. I will be beautiful. I will be accepted. I will be valid. And again, this is something I've been able to understand many years later. But that's why I wanted a role as a beauty director, because in many ways I thought, well, if I'm the beauty director of a magazine, you can't have a go at me because of how I look, because I must look all right if I'm doing the beauty pages. So there was this weird kind of issue there with it. But then the other fundamental thing was I was this girl who was really struggling, who just wanted problems solved. I wanted my facial hair solved. I wanted my hair loss rectified. I wanted not to have acne anymore. So I wanted to get into beauty in order to be able to problem solve for other people. I didn't, it wasn't enough to know what the answers were. I wanted to kind of speak to the dermatologist, speak to the formulating chemists, really get into the weeds of it and be able to answer a question that somebody like me would have had and be helpful. You made a success in terms of wanting to, having read the magazine, saw the beauty pages, the health page, you decided that there were one, there was something here that you could do. Did you do that? Not in the beginning, not in the beginning. I mean, the other thing I wanted to do is I wanted to reach into, remember when the big breakfast was on Channel 4 in the morning? Yeah, yeah. And at 10 minutes to the out, they'd have the news and then at the end of the news, there'd be a like entertainment section. Well, I would say that the big breakfast entertainment section changed my life because I just wanted to reach my hand into the television and go to the Oscars and the MTV Awards and the L Style Awards. I just thought that world looks amazing. That looks so fantastic. And I did that. I've been to those events. I haven't been to the Oscars, but I've been to those events. And that's kind of like, well, that's impressive. But in terms of the kind of the fundamental helping people, when I was on magazines, I was on a celebrity magazine. So you mentioned at the top of the show, pictures with Britney Spears, interviewing Christina Aguilera, interviewing Bette Midler and people like that, like really incredible situations to find oneself in. But it wasn't until I left, until I left magazines and I actually did a stint on QVC. I was a guest presenter. So I'd go on every, for about three years, I would go on and talk about this particular brand. And it really made me understand, which is something I hadn't had on uh, magazines, you have a direct, you're having a direct conversation with the consumer. So if you're talking about, if I'm in a magazine and I'm talking about a moisturizer, I'll say it's got these ingredients in, this is the price, this is where you can get it from, right? But if I'm on QVC, I've got to say, if you struggle with dry skin, 
if you're struggling to find a moisturizer that's really hydrating your skin, if maybe you go out in the morning, you're taking the dog for a walk and you get back and your skin feels really tight and uncomfortable, this is why you need this moisturizer. So you're putting the product into people's hands in a way that you're simply just not doing in the editorial that I used to create. And it made me understand I wasn't having a direct conversation with consumers before. And so I really, really wanted to have a direct dialogue with people. And so that was one of the motivations for starting the podcast, to just have these long form conversations, but also tackle subjects like hair loss. I mean, it's not just beauty stuff and we've covered tons on the show, but particularly with hair loss, even this morning, I had a woman message me saying, I've listened to your podcast on the subject. I've seen your videos on it. I've seen the progress that you've made. I've made my first appointment with a trichologist. Thank you so much. I've spent thousands on all of these topical solutions. None of them have worked. I'm really hoping this is the answer. And that to me is like, it's Monday morning. I've already had an email. I'm going to save that woman thousands. I'm going to save that woman thousands of pounds worth of money that she was going to spend on things that make claims that don't really, they're not claiming to do what she wants it to do, but she's hoping that the claims are going to give her the result that she wants. And yes, she's going to invest in trichology and that isn't an inexpensive solution, but results are almost certain down that road. So I'm just thinking, great. I've helped that person. I've opened their eyes to trichology when perhaps in the past they would have thought their only options were a different type of shampoo and conditioner. Now they've come on this journey and she said she'd been watching for a year, come on this journey, seen what I've been through. And now they're like, right, okay, I'm ready to, to take that step too. And that feels really good because I can feel really confident that whatever happens, whether the trichologist is going to be honest and tell you what's at play and what they can do. And so you're not really dealing with hope with those situations. You're dealing with clinical results, data, case studies. And that I think is so empowering for somebody. So that's what that's what gets me up in the morning. Everything that we read, everything that we see in these beauty magazines, in this world of beauty and fashion, how much of it is true and how much of it is false? I, I see pictures, they're doctored. We often, you know, in magazines and all that, I know that these images are doctored to look better than than what they are and then you see people in real life including myself you know uh, you know post a picture of five years ago I look better than the one that I haven't got stubble or whatever you know I might be on a good day or a bad day um, and think oh that picture looks nicer than that one what am I asking you I'm asking you in your experience in all the years that you've worked in beauty fashion health You've lived through your own trials and tribulations, your own challenges, yet nobody apart from yourself and those closest to you, I suspect, were aware of what you were were having to deal with. Why is it such a hidden world? A hidden world meaning, do you mean the claims that products make? Not so much the claims that products make, just the world that you work in, in terms of beauty and health and fashion, is so popularized it's something that everybody wants to see into yet someone like yourself who works in that world were having challenges and struggles with everything that that world represents does that make sense yeah so I I wanted to be in that world because I thought it would validate me and it didn't actually it was probably the worst scenario I could have put myself in in all honesty but we can get onto that later The thing is, it's a business. I think you've always got to understand health and beauty, it's business. And it's not a small business either. We're talking billions. And that must never be underestimated. And I think I've always come down to this point of, there are two kinds of, fundamentally, there are two different types of beauty consumer, I think. There's the one who really enjoys the sort of pageantry, the ceremony of applying products, what that having that perfume bottle in their handbag or on their dressing table says about them just the packaging, not actually the juice inside. The person who wants to use an expensive moisturizer because they want to use an expensive moisturizer. And then you have perhaps the more results-driven consumer. Now that's definitely who I have turned into because I wanted to be, you know, spritzing the nicest perfumes and surrounded by all the expensive stuff. I used to do beauty sales on the magazine, a bit of a side note. And so it basically once or twice a week, I would empty the beauty cupboard because we get, we were a very, we were the best selling magazine, weekly magazine at the time. We'd get everything. So I would just not have any room. I had one small cabinet. So I would just get my arm in and just throw everything on the floor and be like, do a whistle. And everyone would come running and people nearly broke arms 
leaping for the creme de la mer and leaping for these really expensive labels. And I completely understand that because you think you're getting more expensive stuff, you're getting better. And what I've come to understand is actually it's formulation and ingredients. And sometimes those things don't come with the heftiest price tags. So I want results. So I use active ingredients, clinical grade ingredients, and there's not much kind of flannel with that. There's not much ceremony. It's kind of, you put it on and then you let it do its job. There's no massage it in for five minutes, spritz your face. There's no seven layers of something. But if somebody wants that, I'm never going to take that away from them. What if you work a, a job that really grinds your gears, really gets you down. And yet when you get home at night, knowing that you're going to apply those, take your makeup off and apply those seven steps of skincare is going to be the thing that kind of brings your anxiety down a notch, makes you feel as though you're looking after yourself and you like how it makes your skin feel. I'm not going to take that away from anybody, but it's just being realistic about what that's doing. So that those that kind of beauty ritual has much more meaning in it in many ways, whereas where I've sort of taken my focus because I said a little while ago I'm all about problem solving I want results I don't want to go to a facial and have somebody sort of with plinky plonky music in the background just kind of tap at my face for an hour I want somebody to take off um, all the dead skin do an extraction kind of want a little bit of pain in there because at the end I want to see a result it depends what you want so I guess in answer to your question I was really attracted to the fluffier side of things and I'm really cheered that I have found something much more meaningful through that journey. And that that kind of has been my journey with it all, the results side of things. And But has it worked? Has it helped you now? Because you mentioned that the issues you um, faced when you were young, you still face as an adult. Is that true of these anxieties and, and, and other issues lived with you all this time? Yeah, I think... I realize now I was probably depressed when I was a kid and also anxious. And then that really kind of hit a peak a few years ago and I kind of broke down. There were lots of self-esteem issues going on in that there wasn't any. And so that's why going into quite a high profile kind of shiny media job wasn't perhaps great for me. So I guess in some ways I've been able to deal with the external stuff that I had to kind of cope with, but I have also done the work on the internal as well of try and be less anxious. I understand now that I spent 10 years in a job that on the surface was my dream job. I think I might have said this to you last time we spoke, but I didn't enjoy it because I was just too anxious about it. I was con it was like the sword of Damocles hanging over my head. Here's my dream job. And I thought every day it was going to get taken away from me. So I just couldn't enjoy it. And I used to get really angry at people who could but, but they obviously weren't dealing with this idea that something would get taken away from them. But I created that. I kind of created this in my head that I wasn't worthy of it. So I, I was the one who created this jeopardy around this job. No one else, really. I mean, there, maybe there were some, a few things uh, going on internally, meaning internally in terms of office politics and what have you. But I got to where I wanted to be, but a little bit like going down to the undergraduate admissions officer and it's taken you to say to me, that was really ballsy. I needed somebody else to validate. I, I constantly needed validation. That I was I was going to be okay. My job was safe, all of these sorts of things. And that just speaks to somebody who's not got great sense of self-worth and is also highly anxious, which is definitely what I was the whole time I was in that role, which is something I should have maybe worked on before I got into that role. You, you started your podcast to enlighten people about the issues around health and beauty in particular? Or, or was it a podcast where you just wanted to have these deep and meaningful conversations, as you said, uh, around the beauty health industry? It was, yeah, it was more the latter. It was more the fact that when I, I worked on a magazine that didn't have a lot of column inches in the beauty and fashion pages. And so it was, it was very short snippets, like product name, price, where you could buy it. And yet, because I had quite a high profile role and people wanted to get me in front of these brand founders, I would sometimes sit for an hour talking to people who had built brands from nothing. And I would hear these incredible stories. And it was always a real shame to me that I couldn't platform those stories in the magazine. And then I did QVC and I kind of understood the consumer journey a bit more. And then I was actually really listening to a lot of podcasts at the time. I was listening to a lot of American podcasts. I was listening to Tim Ferriss a lot, to Joe Rogan. 
And I really loved those kind of no holds barred, long form chats where you really got to know somebody. And I thought that's something that we just don't get to see and hear in the beauty industry. And so that was the reason why it started. But then what subsequently happened, so I started in 2016. What subsequently happened is a little while later, I, I like fully broke down. I really had to put a pause on, I just really lost all sense of who I was. And it was, it was really dark. And I realized that what I've been doing is I've been putting myself in front of successful people and asking them for help, <laughs> basically going, how did you overcome all of your struggles? Because I, I, I was hoping that within their answer, my solution would lie because I felt very lost. I didn't feel successful. I, when you have a job that a million people would do, you don't make a lot of money. I felt like I'd got to my late thirties and I was an abject failure. And to your point, I'm sure that from the outside, it wouldn't have looked like that. But to me, I felt like I just messed it all up. And as we've already established, I'm quite good at getting very loud in my own head and really beating myself up. And so that's basically what happened. And so the podcast kind of naturally evolved once I picked myself up to talking to those people still about health and beauty and finding the elements of value within the beauty or health story, but also just that individual story. Because like friends of mine have got tanning brands and there's no blueprint for success to create a tanning brand, right? But they've done it. And it's the same with some of these uh, makeup artists who started out as makeup artists who were in store every day, who've gone on to make millions and millions of pounds as YouTube stars. I really wanted to unpick that. Like, how did, what, would, what did it take? And spoiler alert, listener, it usually takes consistent effort over time. <laughs> like, there's no, <laughs> there's no magic bullet. That's the thing. The thing I say most on the podcast is consistent effort over time equals results. It's boring. It's not sexy. You can't sell it as a pill. It's not going to make you billions of quid. If you just say to some like me with my press ups that I do on Instagram, wanted to do a press up, couldn't do a press up. How have I done press ups? By showing up every day and trying to do a press up. That's how I got there. It took months. But I can how do... many press-ups can you do now? Well, this morning I did six. Why? <laughs> <Hey>, congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I mean, I still, still want to be able to do more and my form needs to be better. But the point is, the progress that I've made has been made because of one really simple thing. I got on the mat every day. I got into a plank. I lowered myself down. I tried to push myself back up. It's as simple as that. And it's so boring. <laughs> it's so boring. And it's no... And it's... I think we look for magic bullets. We look for these things that will kind of click your fingers and you'll get what you want. I mean, we can really unpick the diet industry for that. But actually, as with anything, it's about every single day putting one foot in front of the other. And that's that's really one of the biggest takeaways I've taken from the show up to this point. In all these years that you've been working in the industry that you've been working in, the work that you've been doing around your podcast, et cetera, um, that there is still within your voice, what, what is it that I'm trying to say, that within your voice there is still something that's quite powerful but so weak at the same time, that you're still searching but you've already found that you are determined to achieve the press-ups, for example, but you've already achieved it because you couldn't do one. You can now do six. So you, you've done it six times over what you first wanted to do. So there's this conundrum. And I suppose lots of people live in that world where there is this conundrum. What, what is the ultimate goal? What, what does someone like yourself who has experienced the things that you've experienced overcome the challenges? Because looking at you now, it doesn't look like you've got alopecia right now so you've overcome that issue whether it is something that resurfaces but you address the issue and dealt with the issue and should be able to move on from that issue you don't look overweight to me so it looks like you've dealt with that issue um you know I think I'm of an age where no matter what I do I'm always going to have a little bit of chubs going on somewhere on, on my physique and you can't keep on doing the gym for the whole of your life or at least not as consistently so I suppose my question is, what is the ultimate goal? Because it sounds like you, you, you have a problem, you deal with it, it's done, you can move on. And I'm just trying to understand where it is that you're looking to get to. That's, that's a really good question because, or that's a really good observation, because I think I do have that, and it's something I work on. I do have that issue with my personality where I'm always thinking about the next thing. As much as I try to find contentment in the here and now and be like, this is exactly what I want to be doing. 
I'm always looking at the shiny thing in the future, more listeners, more followers on Instagram, better results. I'm always looking to do better. And actually, I remember a few years ago, a friend saying to me, what about if this year was just the same as last year? Wouldn't that be great? But I do have this thing where I'm like, right, I've done one press up now. I want to do 10. And immediately, and then so there's that lack of kind of, as we've already established, actually just championing, celebrating the achievement. You want to do one press up, you did it. And as soon as it's done, what's the, imagine this, I do one press up for the first time. Can you imagine what happened next? Do you think I stood up or do you think I tried for number two? I think you tried for number two. <laughs> exactly. And that's nothing wrong with that, so I, is there? But you did achieve your goal and could quite easily have just rolled over and then had a glass of champagne. <laughs> I should have done that. But I think I like being ambitious. I like thinking about what's next. What can I do next? What can I keep achieving? I love that. But at the same time, it comes at the expense sometimes of being satisfied, of being content and it and it does bring with it as you can probably tell and i'm this has been like a great therapy session it, what comes with it sometimes is a is a is an anxiety but of right okay well i've got to achieve this now and immediately i i'm moving my own goalposts all the time and creating almost a friction in my life that doesn't need to be there cuz guess what i'm the one who's put it there so maybe maybe i should um yeah maybe i should calm down on that <laughs> But do you still question that? Is there a need to still question that? Why do people still question that? Question what specifically? The want in recognition from other people that you've done what you are doing yourself. You're recognising your own strengths and weaknesses. Why is it important that you get external recognition, whether it is by more followers on or on Instagram or showing people that you've done two press-ups or even four press-ups now or six press-ups why is there this and I don't mean it just Emma I mean why is it that people constantly reach out looking for recognition I think that's a that's really interesting and something actually made me completely change my social media methodology a little while ago because I thought I was posting to get likes and be validated I needed those posts to find the people that needed to find them. So shifting it from whether I get likes or not to whether that content is helpful is what I is what I try to shift it to. Because I do, I agree. I I see some people, and it's not to be critical of them. I think we're all doing our own thing. And you think that that definitely didn't need to be posted. There's this element of oversharing. And so I always try to come at social media or my podcast or anything from an editorial point of view, like who will this benefit? What story am I trying to tell? How am I trying to be helpful? What will the listener leave with? And hopefully, and that's why that's why I talk about getting more listeners because I think, well, if I'm putting, I really want this episode, say it's about hair loss because we've talked about that a little bit. I know this is jam packed with everything, every single question that any woman or man might have about hair loss. I know this is jam packed with information. I know I've got one of the best trichologists in the country on my podcast talking through every single aspect of it. I want that to reach as many people as possible because I think I've created something really valuable and really helpful. So that's that's the position I come from when I think oh, I want I want to achieve more, I want to build an audience because I I think I'm doing I think I'm creating things that are helpful and useful and that people will finish listening to and think I'm so glad I listened to that. Whilst we talk about it, tell me about your own story on, on alopecia and why this became an issue for you and how you dealt with it and why you, you know, have the leading expert on your podcast talking about it, how you got to that point. So my alopecia first started when I got diagnosed, well, when I had symptoms of polycystic ovarian syndrome when I was a kid, so about 12. I got diagnosed when I was 17. Um, but the, the, I was basically put on the pill to regulate my hormones. So it didn't have any impact on my hair, but it cleared up my skin a treat, which was fantastic. So for years, I've just had a very thin hairline and I used to wear my hair in a side parting because if I, this is why I wear a center parting now, cause I'm like, I can, um, and I've painted it in a little bit, but it would be, it was this sort of pattern thinning here. So it was, it's a triangle. And this is really typical of um, female pattern hair loss as it kind of moves back in a triangle like this and it's progressive so it's just going to get worse over time and I had tried all of the over-the-counter things and I was very lucky when I was on okay I would go I I had a discount card to go and see pretty much every 
hairdresser, like big name hairdresser uh, for free. It was like, oh yeah, you can book a hundred percent discount card. You can go in and see Nikki Clark, Richard Ward. I mean, think of all the really like Larry King, all of these amazing people. And so we would just do bouncy blow dries, but we would never talk about the fact that my hair was thinning. There's one hairdresser, Adam Reed, who I've been seeing for about 20 years, who used to suggest supplements and what have you. But I was just using these over-the-counter things and there are various brands like Nioxin. They would very kindly top me up with a supply. They'd look when I'd go to their press days, they'd look at it and say, Yeah, your hair's definitely thinning. And my the real progress I was able to make was to go and see a trichologist. And that happened actually during lockdown. So in 2020, Philip Kingsley, uh, the brand, approached me and said, Would you like to have we're doing online consultations in lockdown because we can't do it in the clinic? Would you like to have a consultation with Annabelle Kingsley? And I said, you darn toot and I would. And I was extremely nervous because my hair was a lot thinner than it is now. And I was really nervous as well because I didn't want to find out that I needed a treatment that was going to cost me a lot of money that I couldn't then pay for. And that was one of the reasons I'd always steered away from a trichology solution because these things aren't inexpensive. And they're also, once you start, it's like moisturizer. If you use a moisturizer one day, your skin's hydrated. If you then stop using it, your skin won't be hydrated. It's the same with trichology. Uh, with the treatments, you have to keep using them in order to get the results. And if you stop using them, it will regress. So I, I had real anxiety about that because I think I've said, um, you have a job a million people would do. You don't earn a huge amount of money. And so I didn't want to find out that the thing would that would solve it would be out of my price range. But as it turned out, I had the consultation and Annabelle over Zoom said, I'm almost certain that you've got androgenic alopecia, but we'll get you in clinic once lockdown, lockdown is lifted to confirm the diagnosis and look at you properly. And so then I saw a wonderful uh, trichologist called uh, Susie Hammond. And again, it's this consistent effort over time. And it was one of those experiences where this was another example of it really working because it was here's what you need here are the topical products that you can apply these are the this is the advice about how to look after your hair that we would recommend to make sure that you don't lose any more don't look for results for three months just don't look for results just be really consistent and then come back and see us in three months and we'll look under the microscope and actually putting your faith in the fact that that action every day in the morning and in the evening is going to have a result was really, again, it was like, oh, I'm really, I'm really understanding this. Consistent effort over time equals results. And so that was May 2020. So it's been over two years. And my it's like having a completely different head of hair. And I want that for everybody who was in the position I was in and who has a condition that can be treated. I really do because... It's, I didn't realize it was one of those things where in the morning it took a little bit of time to like style my hair a certain way because so that I didn't expose where it was really thin and where there were some bald patches. And now it's just, just because of those two actions I do morning and evening, I don't have to think about it. I just part my hair down the middle and I'm off. And I want that for anyone because for anyone who's ever tried to do a comb over male or female, not having to do it anymore, it's just feels quite wonderful. <laughs> So what, what, does the, what does the future hold, Emma? What, I mean, you've got this phenomenal podcast and obviously you're still doing consultancy work around beauty, health, brand products and stuff like that. What is your, I, I hesitate to say day job because very few people have a day job unless it's a nine to five day. So, so what, is, what is it that you're doing at the moment that you enjoy doing at the moment beyond your podcast? Well, that's a really good question. So this year I have thrown lots of things up in the air and so there's a lot of change. So actually I can't answer that question in a way that would be uh, as I maybe would have done a couple of years ago because actually everything looks very different at the moment. I love creating the podcast. I want to um, redirect it a little bit just because I've been doing it 87 years and I feel as though there's been a journey that I've been on as much as the listeners have. And I think one of the things that I've really kind of faced up to in the last couple of years is uh, my own part in the stuff that has made me unhappy. And I think once I saw that and stopped blaming external sources or other people or other things and started making myself accountable, I think that's where actually I've made 
the most progress in my life. And so I want to bring that tone to the podcast because I think actually taking ownership, understanding that you have agency, I think a lot of us, me include, and I say this because this was the position I was in and I would say no one is ever fully recovered necessarily, but it was this is this idea that life happens to you, that you don't have agency. And I, I think that's false. I think actually, yes, there are going to be some situations where you don't have agency, where terrible things happen and you're you're stuck. But I think there are a lot of the things that people battle with, as I think we've probably established during this conversation, I created a lot of them myself. And there I was thinking that a bad boss or a mean colleague or a bully was in my way. And often the actual obstacle that I couldn't get over was the one I was refusing to see. And that obstacle was me. Most of the time, but not all of the time, because Most sometimes time. it can be a combination of of that yep, bully or the, of that person. It just kind of manifests itself differently within. I, I mm. That's brave. <laughs> yeah, that is, isn't it? <laughs> brave or stupid. So are you still working in the sort of um, brand beauty space? Are you still writing for publications? Because I know you've written to written for lots of different publications over the years. I mean, is that still a space that you're working in or are you pushing that to one side to do other things? I'm not writing for magazines or newspapers anymore. If I'm asked to write something, I will um very flattered and I'll consider it depending on what the subject matter is. But um, it's not a priority at the moment. The priority is really putting the effort into the podcast. Like I've like you, I do video production now. It used to only be audio, but you can't really have a podcast now unless you're creating video at the same time. That's a massive investment. <laughs> That's a huge change in kind of uh, what I think most people started podcasts because it was really inexpensive to do so. You didn't need to be that technical. And now all of a sudden, if you want to compete, you have to be competing and it's going to cost you money. So that's been a big shift. And I really, not really want to, I have started writing a book about um, the weight story, my weight story, because I think I'm not alone. I think I'm like a lot of people out there who can't understand why they aren't losing weight and really want to. And so this sits not with it. It's not anti-diet. It's not body positivity. It's not body acceptance. It's actually about what's getting in the way because for me a lot of the time what was getting in the way of it was this fact that I had this emotional eating and there was this um I assumed that once you lost weight you would just you didn't have to try just you didn't have to try I'm laughing because it's kind of ridiculous I thought that once you got to your goal weight that was it you could just crack on (laughs) I didn't realize you'd immediately like put three stone on in the space of four months so all of these sort of things that you look back and think oh god you're such an idiot it was so obvious so I really want to tell that story because I don't believe I'm alone in being that person who was dissatisfied with being in the shape I was in and wanted to change it, but really struggled to get there. So I want, again, it creating what I hope will be something of a manual that will also tell my story that will be helpful for the person who hasn't been able to put two and two together for their own journey. And tell me a little bit about that because we explored some of the issue when you were younger, when you first identified that your body shape had changed comments were being made and that kind of propelled us into a discussion about the psychological the mental impact that something like that can have but we didn't really until here at the end you started talking about your problem with weight over the years and exercise what was that problem Emma I mean is it more than what you talked about at the beginning where you know your hormones had changed and therefore changed your body shape and and lots of other things um or was it more than that I think it was more than that I think hormones play a certain role but ultimately the hormones like I'm understanding made made me hungrier but that hunger wasn't necessarily real and I think I also had uh, I found comfort in food as a lot of people do So yeah, it was kind of, things weren't really in my favor hormone wise, but there were also, it was my behaviors fundamentally that informed the shape and weight that I would always go back up to. So I'd be brilliant. Like I'd get up at five o'clock in the morning. I'd go to the gym before work every single day. I'd then go back to the gym and do a class or a spinning session. So I, and I would hammer it and I would get down to whatever weight I was, but I was very much about perfectionism. It was like seven days a week and I could only eat these things. And if I ate anything else, that was really, really bad. And I had to atone for it. And that's a really horrible cycle to be on. 
because it's, all it takes is one blowout or one cold where you can't get to the gym for three days. And in my head, I'm like, oh, I've ruined it all. I've ruined it all. So that's why I said right at the top, I aim for imperfect action. I do consistent effort over time. And sometimes you can't do it as regularly as you want. But as long as you just keep hammering, keep doing it, be consistent. And it's, I think in the past, I used to approach weight loss with real kind of like, like like Hulk Hogan like I had to be flexed and panicked and it was it was all I could think about and it was just this really kind of energy I can't think of a word to describe it I'm so sorry <laughs> but, but now it's much it does the job <laughs> but it's much calmer it's it's much less about I've got to be perfect I've got to be a hundred percent now it's like it's really really great if I show up today and if I didn't I have, again, you have to be accountable. Like, did you not show up because you couldn't be bothered or did you not show up because you were out all day and you didn't get to eat until five? Like, I think it's just being really realistic with yourself. But I think what I want to do with the book is kind of take that sort of being in first gear with the pedal to the metal and everything kind of the engine screaming at you away from people and actually arm them with the tools that will make it a much more peaceful thing. Like it's, it's not, it doesn't have to be as stressful as we make it. And there's all this external pressure about how bodies should look and what have you. And just like, forget about that. How do you feel? And what do you want to achieve? Okay, well, these are the things that might be standing in your way. Let's just unpick them and see if we can't make you see it in a new way that is really helpful and gets you to where you want to be. When you sit down and you have these conversations with someone like me who's asking you about your life experiences, your journey, no doubt it conjures up moments, you know, of memory, of reflection and emotions and whatnot. How are you feeling now? Having had some of this conversation about some of the things that you've probably talked about a million times, but not with me. You know, honestly, I'm being really honest here, it's, it's an actual feeling of, um, oh God, did I sound like a knob? <laughs> it's I, I just I've almost completely invalidated everything that I've shared with you by thinking that oh I shouldn't have said that so I I tend to go through that but I have really enjoyed it because you have um you've pushed me in a way that I think is I will take a lot from this conversation because there's been yeah you've made me think about things in a in a way that I think has been really useful but yeah my initial reaction with anything like that is oh god someone's going to listen to this and think I'm a knob <laughs> so you're doing what you're famous <laughs> for right you're, you're you're doing and I'm going to describe it like that you're doing what and saying what you're famous for someone who questions themselves and, and reflects on themselves mm. quite harshly quite quickly well let me reassure you that you've not sounded like a knob or you've not <laughs> sounded like you've not thought about what it is that you talk about you do and you articulate it in a way where you can see your mind working I can see you're protecting yourself but also revealing yourself I can see that you're trying to say look these are issues that I have to deal with other people have to deal with and you don't have the magic bullet and and we find it in our own way so thank you for being honest and and open as much as you felt comfortable being open and, and honest because you know, I'm asking you questions, you're sharing with people who've never heard you before, some of your most intimate details, but I'm sure lots of people take away from these intimate details, something that they can put to use in their own life. And whether we like it or not, we do inspire people when we share our our most intimate um, kind of personal details because that's what people are looking for sometimes they are looking for people like yourself who have struggled with the issues that you struggled with but also the success that you've had in your life you know oh my god if emma who says that she had all these internal issues going on can be so successful in the work that she did even if she kind of wasn't happy with the outcome you were and have been a a phenomenal success in, in your career and waffle waffle but emma great thank you so much for spending time with me it's really appreciated no, thanks for pleasure. sharing your story thank you i've really enjoyed it and thank you for um yeah thank you for challenging and making me think as well i've really taken a lot from this that was not my intention i wasn't <laughs> intending to challenge you i was asking you questions so, but it's good to know that if you know these things do challenge you to think differently or think about what it is that you're sharing then that's a good thing uh, it was a, more a challenge to honesty uh, so a good a good thing i'm using it as a positive not i'm not saying as a negative I'm saying it's a real positive and that's an interesting thing then isn't it even though I said we're going to end this it makes me wonder whether <laughs> whether that is something in your life then that sometimes you know being honest about you know yourself 
your journey, do you struggle with that? Do you find that difficult to do or share sometimes? It doesn't no. strike me like... No, I feel actually sometimes I'm too much of an open book and sometimes I feel that that leaves one open for attack. But I, you've asked questions in a way that have made me want to be honest, but you've made me feel really comfortable. So that's where the magic lies. And, and it's, it's, it's that word, that magic word, attack, you know, it leaves one open for, for attack. And that's always been something that you've... Um, I, I, I see it all as a positive even the negatives can be turned into a positive and it sounds like you're you're doing that most people do that every day Emma thanks so much pleasure thanks for tuning into second chance podcast your support is greatly appreciated you can find the video of this interview on our youtube channel at Second Chance Podcast, where you can also subscribe to be notified of new episodes. Please share our episodes with your friends, family and colleagues and follow us on YouTube and your preferred podcast platform for updates on new episodes. Your feedback is also crucial to the growth of our podcast, so please rate and review our episodes and let us know your thoughts in the comments section. We rely on several talented individuals and teams to bring this podcast to life. Logan Martin assists create content. Audio Avalanche handles audio editing. J-Row Productions creates original music. Studio Minerva designs our eye-catching covers. Social media marketing agency Scribble manages and creates our social media content. Kim Collicut oversees episode production with me, your host, Raphael Rowe. Thanks for tuning in. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.